Hi, everyone. My name is Blair Embry. I'm the communications manager for Prison Yoga Project, and we are blessed here today to welcome Jivana Heyman. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Blair. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Um, can I introduce myself? So I'm, I'm Jivana. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm joining you from Chumash land, colonized as Santa Barbara, California today. And it's great to see so many people I know. <laughs> so hi, everyone. I love this. Um, and I'll do a formal introduction of Jivna as well. Um, he is a certified yoga therapist on ERYT 500 and is the author of Accessible Yoga, Poses and Practices for Everybody and Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Jivana is the founder and director of the Accessible Yoga Association, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to increasing access to the yoga teachings. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm yeah. excited. And before we dive in, I'm just really excited to get into uh, some deep yogic conversations today. Will you lead us in a centering opportunity? Sure. I was trying to think of what to do, and I... I, I... You know, I've been leading centerings a lot these days on Zoom, and often they're short. And I thought, and sometimes they're just kind of these brief meditations. I thought instead we could do a little bit of a practice. My dog keeps coming in. I'm sorry. She likes to walk in and out of the room, so you might hear her. Um, what I thought we could do is a practice, a uh, pranayama practice of alternate nostril breathing and then a short meditation. And I love to offer this practice in a very in a variety of ways. Um, can offer it traditionally using a hand. Um, so get comfortable. And of course, with pranayama, you know, it's a powerful practice. And so the first thing I want to say is you always have a choice to do it a different way, to stop practicing or just imagine it. In fact, that's what we're going to work on today. So I was going to say you could use a hand traditionally, make a mudra by extending the last two fingers and thumb and bring it up to the face. Or you can use your mind. And that's the way I want to lead it today is mentally, which is simultaneously more accessible and more advanced because <laughs> you have to focus. All right. So you can have the eyes open or closed. And first, just become aware of the breath moving in and out through both nostrils. Just notice that for a moment. See how that feels. And then see if you can become aware or imagine the breath leaving through the right nostril only. So exhaling through the right nostril. And then at your own pace, breathing in through the right nostril. And switch sides, exhaling from the left nostril. And then inhaling from the left side. And Again, you can feel it or just imagine it if you don't feel it. And switch again. So exhaling from the right side. Inhaling right. Exhaling left. Inhaling left. And last exhale from the right nostril. And then relax the breath. Notice how you're feeling. See how that practice 
impacted your body and your nervous system and your mind? And let's sit for a minute longer in meditation. I'd like you to bring up something into the mind that's really enjoyable for you, but something kind of neutral too. Maybe it's like a picture in your mind of a place you like to be or a word you like. You could use a Sanskrit word like om or a word in English like peace or love or the face of someone you love. Just think of something really pleasant and uplifting. See if you can focus the mind on it just for a moment. And if the mind wanders away, that's okay. Just bring it back. And then take a deep inhalation and long exhale. We have one more of those. So a deep inhale, long exhale. Slowly coming back, opening the eyes if they were closed. Coming back into your surroundings, your physical space, and then back to our virtual space here that we're connected with. Thank you. Well, I absolutely loved that. Um, it took self-restraint. That was hard. The, the, the focusing of the nostrils. Um, it was so far hard. In fact, I just wanted to burst out into laughter. <laughs> it really like softened. I could feel it soften in myself. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it does, it takes so much focus. Uh, yeah. And so I really loved that piece. And then um, just kind of sharing my experience a little bit. Um, then the word that I used to focus on was laughter. Mm. And I really felt my heart start to warm as mm. well. And so that was a really nice, potent practice. Wow. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. I mean, I love doing practices like that with the mind because so much of yoga is about the mind and we often don't talk about it directly and give people a chance to experience it. And I think what I love again, is that it's both accessible and advanced because it's accessible in that it doesn't take really any physical movement. So it's physically accessible. It can be challenging mentally, um, you know, for sure, but if it's short enough, I think it's okay. Right. So it's not overwhelming. And I think if you give clear instruction, that's really helpful too. So I would keep guiding that one. You know, I wouldn't leave that. Like I wouldn't just have people do it themselves necessarily. Like I might with the actual physical practice, I would guide the breath just to keep, to help people stay focused because it's so challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I love how you're really bringing in this piece of uh, the mind, right? So much of yoga is mind training. Oh, yeah. It really is. What's and, yeah, tell me. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's a little frustrating to me because I feel like, you know, sometimes we need to work through the body to do that. And that's fine. That's what awesome is amazing. And we're so lucky to have all these tools, right, in yoga to, to choose from. 
Um, and so depending on where people are at, just doing physical practice is great. But even in that physical practice, we have to remember that the goal is to work with the mind. And so how are you teaching asana? You know, are we teaching asana in a way that actually engages the mind? Like, how do you feel as you're doing that pose? What's the breath doing while you're doing that pose? It's not just, it's, we get so caught up in the physicality. Sometimes we lose that part, you know, the more, the more subtle piece that I think is even more profound. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What's your first memory of yoga? Well, I was really lucky because my grandmother um, was a very dedicated practitioner. She found yoga. I don't even know. I must have been like in the 1950s. She was really like a very special person, very spiritual person, kind of always looking and seeking. And she lived in L.A. and like, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And so she practiced with some incredible teachers, including uh, my teacher, Swami Satchitananda. She practiced with him. And then she also practiced with uh, Jay Krishnamurti here in Ojai. And um, literally like my earliest memories in general of anything are of her doing yoga. Like, cause it was so kind of unusual, I think in my life to see something, you know, she had a regular practice. She would just be like moving her body and standing on her head every day and like doing all these things. And I was just so amazed by that and, and curious, you know, and, and I had a really big family. And so like, I got, that became like a special time where she would spend time with me because I was interested and I would go and kind of sit with her and then she would teach me a little bit too. So yeah, it definitely had a huge impact, <laughs> you know, so yoga, I know you work with kids, right? Yeah. And it definitely can have a big impact. And I know like, like I have two kids who are older now and, and they don't practice, but I keep hoping and praying that what we did when they were younger, will come back later, you know, that they'll come back to it when they need it. Yeah. Are there seeds that you remember that your grandma planted that you continue to go back and water and remember? Yeah. I mean, she taught me about meditation and I remember just thinking, first I was thinking, wow, this seems kind of familiar, but also really unusual. And like, I didn't, you know, like it really was, it was so different than everything else that people were teaching me in my life. You know what I mean? It's like everyone else is teaching me about the world, like this world. And I feel like she was teaching me about something much bigger and deeper and more mysterious and, and more interesting. Um, and that definitely stayed with me for sure. Yeah. So I am still working my way through it, but we just finished a book club of your book, yoga revolution, building a practice of courage and compassion. Um, you know, you spoke a little bit about returning to yoga or diving deeper into yoga, um, during the AIDS epidemic. Will you talk to us about this time in your life? Yeah, I'm so grateful that you used that book in the book club. I hope it went well. I, I don't know how that was, but I appreciate it. Um, it was fantastic. Oh, good. Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, basically, my you know, my story was that I did learn yoga from my grandmother, but then I stopped, just like I'm saying my kids, you know, have stopped. Um, but then... You know, I came out as a gay man, I don't know, in I was probably 18 or something. And that was like right in the in the 1980s, the middle of the AIDS epidemic, you know, which you mentioned. But like for for those of you that are older like me, you can remember those days. And I think for younger people, 
they can connect it a little bit to COVID. It was similar in some ways to COVID. The main difference would be that in the early part of the epidemic, it was almost all gay men that were dying. And of course, AIDS has spread tremendously and it's still, you know, I'll just mention that it's still an issue that there's no cure for AIDS. Um, there's no vaccine. Um, and many people are living with HIV and AIDS still. Over 40 million people died over these 40 plus years of AIDS. And so it's just really important to remember that. But um, for me, it was just such a um, confusing and difficult time because I was like this newly out, excited, young gay guy trying, you know, I just wanted to like find my community and have fun and like party or whatever. And literally everyone I met was like struggling and either, you know, really sick or just finding out they were HIV positive or whatever. And, and a lot of the, especially the slightly older gay men that I met or kind of became like my mentors in the community, they were getting sick and dying. And so in the course of, I would say like, I don't know, four or five years, I probably I probably knew at least 20 people that died and including my best friend actually who died of AIDS. Uh, eventually he died in 1995. And so I would just, you know, I, it's just, it was devastating and confusing and I was grieving and angry. And so I got involved with ACT UP, an AIDS activist group, and I was demonstrating on the streets and getting arrested a lot. And that was like an outlet for the anger, but there was still so much, um, I would say grief, and just confusion um, for me around that. And I mean, I, th I think the thing is, I'll just maybe generalize for a minute <laughs> that mm, we're all gonna die and we mostly spend our lives pretending that we're not. And in a way, there was a tremendous gift. I feel like my friends gave me this kind of glimpse into the reality of our lives, right? Like they showed me what was like to face mortality at a young age. And I feel like I was blessed to learn from them. And so I've decided to basically dedicate my life to serving them and to like trying to like get that message out that um, really around spirituality and approaching mortality and death in a conscious way. And to me, yoga was the practice that really spoke to that directly. I mean, it's just so clear in the yoga teachings. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I could go on about it forever, honestly. So I'll stop. <laughs> no, um, this, that's the point. We're together. Keep going. Right. That's no, okay. Yeah. Ask me more questions. Okay. So the, the grief disguised as anger, you spoke about mm -hmm. this in the book. And I want to dive into that a little bit more. Um, I often describe it as that like um, anger is the blanket. Mm -hmm. over grief mm -hmm. how did this inform your yoga practice yeah that's such a good question grief is so complex and i think you know it's probably i don't know for me maybe the most complex emotion that that i have um at least the most complex painful one love is also complex <laughs> but um Grief is because there's grief around so many things, including what I just spoke about. There's grief around the fact that we're mortal and that this body and mind is limited and that, you know, our ego gets stuck there. So part of grief is like, 
I think, helpful to realize that there is a limit to this human existence that we have. And I think that can be useful for us. It's honest. Do you know what I'm saying? Grief is honest. Mm -hmm. But the ego doesn't want to be honest, usually. The ego likes to, you know, avoid that. Avoid this idea that it's limited. And in a way, I mean, that's what the yoga teachings tell us, right? That the, the ego is almost like the, the mask. It's like masquerading as us, even though we're spiritual beings, right? There's so much more to us. You know, we're eternal, immortal beings, this, that in our heart, but we're masquerading as this limited human and the ego is very invested in that. And so I think the anger piece to me is very connected to my ego and also something to work on and practice, you know, and not to deny it, but just to reflect on, you know, the anger is often related to my ego's frustration about its mortality, but in more simple ways, it's attachments and it's aversions and things that it doesn't want. And then things that it wants, the things it thinks it needs to be happy, right? All the things that like the kleshas, you know, familiar with the kleshas in the second chapter of the yoga sutras and you know, it starts with basic ignorance of our true self. And then because of that, this ego like mask is formed. And then that mask has all these special needs, likes and dislikes. You know, that's what I don't know if, you know, Swami Shivananda is um, like my teacher's teacher. He used to say like likes and dislikes. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because we want to be individual. We want to enjoy our personality and, and think it's, it's fun to have likes and dislikes. But it also is kind of the problem, right? Because we begin to form this like solidified identity that then grief and anger, anger comes really when we start to break that down, when that, you know, when that like facade crumbles, I would say. I feel like you're speaking to so many things, right? One impermanence, really practicing and contemplating our impermanence. Um, and when we forget about the concept of impermanence, I do think it's so easy, not even when we forget about it, but like even contemplating on impermanence, um, grief is there and grief is even in the loss of beautiful things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what I love about yoga. It's just, I, I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but I would say Buddhism focuses more on like the stark reality of impermanence yoga i feel like it's a little more positive because yoga is more a little more dual well at least classical yoga from patanjali let's just say is a dualistic philosophy that focuses on part of us being permanent Mm. that helps me because i'm you know because i'm afraid and scared of whatever dying but it's like nice to think oh wait you know my atman purusha spirit will live on and be immortal and eternal and that's and that's who i really am anyway that's the consciousness within me. That that's not. It might change forms. It may not be recognizable as me, but it's not. It's not impermanent. And a lot of, I mean, it, you see that that thread through a lot of the yoga teachings, Upanishads, and the Gita. Um, you know, there's such a beautiful in the Kata Upanishad. There's a conversation with Nachiketa and death. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's just so, I mean, it's so amazing. Oh, there you go. So, so you were reading my mind. I, I brought it out because of this conversation. Okay. Will you will you talk to us about the conversation that they have? Yeah, I mean, it's um it's great. 
first of all, the Upanishads are amazing because they're all conversations. And I love, I love that just that, you know, that's how we learn, right? Like we learn like this, like here's a conversation. And that's how we all learn is by, by talking to each other and listening to each other. Um, anyway, the Katu Upanishad is like, yeah, Nachiketa is this young boy and he, I mean, I can tell a whole story if you want. Yeah, let's Basically, do it. He's, his dad says that he's going to be like very pious and he's going to give all his belongings to God. He's going to like, you know, make all these sacrifices. But then Nachiketa sees that his dad's only giving away the things that he doesn't need. <laughs> he's only giving away the cow that no longer gives milk, you know, for example. And um, so Nachiketa calls him out and uh, his dad gets angry at him and basically says, way to death, you know. And so he sends him to death just in his anger. And so Nachiketa goes to, to see the Lord of death, Yama. And Yama isn't home. And so Nachiketa waits for three days, three nights. And then Nachiketa, then Yama arrives, God of death, and says, oh, my God, I can't believe you're waiting for me. And what's really interesting, by the way, in that story is that Nachiketa is a high caste. You know, caste is important in yoga, and I think really unspoken about currently in I mean, now people are finally talking about it, but casteism is a huge obstacle to accessibility in yoga throughout the history of yoga and still now. And so I think we need, if we're going to talk about accessibility at some point, we need to just identify casteism. Anyway, so because he's a higher caste person, Yama said, oh, well, I'm not allowed to make you wait and not invite you into my home and treat you well. So because I made you wait three nights, I'm going to give you three wishes basically like three blessings what do you want and so he says i first he says i want my dad to take me back and not be angry at me and then the second one is confusing but he basically names a, a ceremony for nachiketa but the third one he says nachiketa says i want to know the secret of death you know what happens when we die and and death is like no don't ask for that you know you don't want that you don't want to see that um ask for you know riches and whatever. Um, so then he tells Nachiketa the secret of death, which is basically that, you know, that it's a dual philosophy as presented again, that your body and mind will die, but your spirit will live on and be eternal. And just don't focus so much on what you can gain in this life, but on connecting with that truth within you, which is really, I think, at the heart of the classical yoga teachings, you know, this idea of do we identify as a human, limited, or do we identify as this unlimited, immortal, spiritual being? And I think that's that's kind of what the same message is in the Gita, um, and definitely in the in the Sutra is even clearer. The Gita also has some non-dual teachings in there, but um, yeah. So um, I hope that was made sense. I love I love that story. It's so great. I love that story too. It makes me laugh every time because I just imagine death being like, no, please don't ask any other questions. Yes. Don't ask me that question. I love that he's bargaining with him mm-hmm. uh, in this way, which I also think is like uh, something that we do in stages of grief is like bargaining. Ask me anything else. All oh, right. Have anything stages else. Stages of grief. Yeah. That's so yeah. funny. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's be- oh, what's really nice, you can su- search for it on um, YouTube. You can find 
um, old Indian TV shows that have um, them acting it out, you know, people acting out this conversation, um, which is really awesome. I'm going to do that after our time yeah. together. Maybe yeah. I can put some links into the podcast recording too. So we have the AIDS epidemic. Uh, you talked about COVID in your book as well. And then you also talk about um, the grief of losing both of your parents. Mm. How, yeah, yeah how, how, how has this continued to inform your practice? I mean, yeah, it was rough. My parents died within a couple of years of each other and just, um, you know, yeah, around just before COVID really. So yeah, it was a lot. Um, well, it was a good reminder in a way. I mean, it was horrible to lose them both, but it reminded me, oh yeah, I, I'm so attached. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so not doing my practice. I mean, that's what practice is to me is trying to connect with the truth of who I am and to, I mean, that's how I can reduce my suffering. And I, I think that's the thing about practice, right? Yoga and spiritual practice in general is about reducing our suffering. That's what we're all trying to do. But I think we often go about it. And I'll speak for myself. I go about it in the wrong ways. You know what I mean? Like I go about reducing suffering by trying to find things that make me feel good. And that's fine. It's good to enjoy the world. But those limited experiences can turn into addiction too. I mean, it's, it's really a trap, right? That if we're constantly seeking outwardly, it's so easy to get caught up in things that we think are going to solve the problem. Um, whatever that is. I mean, it can be obvious addictions or more subtle ones that are ingrained in the kind of Western culture, like, um, you know, like addiction to money and power and physical appearance and um, physical ability and health, I would say, are also in there. That these are all, I'm not saying all addictions, but they have that same quality of like, seeking oh if i just have that then i'll be happy right and and it's just such a trap for us like the celebrity culture i mean if you look at yoga and this is a little bit of a side but i'll just say like i think yoga culture in the, the west or whatever you want to call it contemporary yoga culture is so confusing because it's literally contradictory to yoga i mean the way that we choose individual teachers and make them into kind of celebrities and make it about them as individuals is so contrary to what yoga teaches us about not identifying and becoming attached to certain, you know, um, individual way of being rather connecting to something deeper that I think we can express more when we're supporting community, when we're in service to others, right? That's yoga. Saying I'm a big famous yoga teacher is not actually yoga practice. The opposite is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> So a lot of my practice is navigating that, trying to use any like platform I have to speak to what I feel like is the heart of the teachings and to support the accessible yoga community. I mean, I, I'm trying to dedicate myself to that because that's the practice. Otherwise I'm just, you know, continuing this same cycle of suffering for myself. Thank you for speaking to that. Um, and I feel like one of the addictions that we're kind of speaking to is even like status, 
yeah. status with our work, like climbing this ladder, tying it in with capitalism and this, uh, you know, the endless suffering of, um, and this hole in the void of it's not, it's never enough. Yeah, it's never enough. It is never enough. You just keep throwing no. it in. Yeah. I mean, I, I've met a few kind of famous people in my life, like, you know, some really well-known yoga teachers and some other, like, I, I know someone who's an actor and I mean, they always pretty much say the same thing. I think money is nice. Like people really enjoy having money that creates comfort for them. And so I do think that's a problem. Like we really need to address that in terms of the fact that people are suffering physically. They don't have housing. They don't have food. They don't have security, but like the fame piece that is useless. I mean, I, I see it causing more suffering and that's related to status. I mean, sure. You think it'll make you happy, but I don't think it. I think it becomes a bigger need. Like the more you feed it, the more it grows within you. This like need for other people to like you and more like, I mean, social media is literally designed to support that way of thinking and being. And it's a trap that I get caught into all the time. Oh, did people like my reel? You know, did people, I mean, it's, it's funny because there's this sense of community there too, like potential for community in social media, but it's constantly being kind of um, mixed with ego. I completely agree. And I, I mean, like I'm an internet person. I do. I do yeah. love the internet because I feel, I like thinking of the potential of the internet and feeling that sense of community. Um, especially when we have um, third spaces disappearing, right? It's like, whether that's on purpose or whatever is whatever the causes and conditions of physical spaces kind of disappearing where we gather or we don't have to spend money Mm-hmm. The internet is the new face of that. Yeah. Um, and oh, well, I don't remember the documentary that uh, came out yeah. a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know. The, yeah, I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's conditioned to be addictive. Yeah. I think, I think that for me, I mean, social media and the internet is yet another platform for, for my mind to deal with. So, you know, it's like, it's just another place to do my work. So, I mean, to do my inner work and to really be conscious. And I think it's a, it's potential to, there's a potential to use social media to reach people, but you have to make sure you're really consciously using it. Otherwise it's using you. And I think it's probably both things, but (laughs) Like I really try like to to use the platforms as much as I can to get my message out there rather than just to get caught up in it. Like I'm I use for me, I use social media to teach as much as I can. It's not about me. Like I don't share really my personal life. I want to be honest on it, but I don't I don't put myself out there personally in a sense. It's just another, it's like writing a book is another platform for teaching being on social media as a way to teach. That's my mission is to teach and share. So I will do it anywhere I can, but I just need to keep part of my mind separate and watching just like with any practice that I do. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Simon, you're right. Um, in the chat, the social dilemma, that was the name of the documentary you and I were both thinking of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually, let's talk about your social media, because what I really love uh, this kind of series that you do is you do a duet with someone who might be like, um, you know, Instagram famous or like, uh, you know, an intense yoga practice is, is how I would describe it. And then you offer uh, a chair version or an accessible accessible version. And I love this because you don't do it in a way um, that is like demeaning to someone else's practice. You do it in a way that uplifts people. So let's talk about accessible yoga. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, I'm trying to use it um, to make my point. Right. It's, and I think the tools are there for us to find, um, yeah, to like use the platform, just like, like I said, the tools of any medium, like, like standing in a room or, or sitting in a room with people or standing in front of a room, lecturing or teaching a yoga class or writing a book or an article or speaking to you now, or yeah, making a real, it's like, how, how does this particular medium, um, what message can I share on this platform? So like reels to me, it's like a visual medium. So it's obviously, if you look at what the impact it had on yoga, we can see that visual medium is very dangerous, really detrimental to yoga. Mm. I'd say, because it, 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 you know, starting with yoga journal and the magazines, when that was the big, you know, before, really before the internet, like magazines were where we saw those images of these physically advanced practices in certain bodies, right? Like young, thin, white bodies. And, and that, that was, those are the bodies that were doing asana and that, that these very complicated asanas were what were, you know, lifted up as the goal. And I mean, there is a history of that in yoga. I mean, so it's not all new. Um, and there's such beauty and power in asana. So I, I feel like it's, it's a complicated story. Like it's not all bad. But there's, but there was no balance to it. There's no other side. There was no like, you know what I'm saying? There was no like real exploration of the subtle practice because in a visual medium, you're only seeing the external. And yoga is 100% an internal practice. So it really doesn't matter what shape you're making with your body. It actually matters what your mind is doing while you're in that shape. So you can't tell if that person's doing yoga or not. In fact, when my daughter was, uh, my daughter is now 17, when she was like nine or something, I remember she was really into gymnastics and we would play around with asana together and she could do anything, like any asana I could think of, she could do it in her body, you know, this like very flexible, thin nine-year-old body. And yet she was really very hyper person. Like she was just like a really <laughs> kind of uh, manic and out there. And it's not that she wasn't a yogi, but you know what I mean? She wasn't, she wasn't really like an advanced yogi, I would say. And yet her body could make these shapes. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, this just showed, I mean, there was a lesson for me, like yoga can look like, it can look like you're doing yoga on the outside, but on the inside, you know, you could be kind of a wild nine-year-old. Um, so anyway, I think that external vision of yoga is, detrimental and social media really like blew it up. And so, yeah, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to like, I don't know what the word is, um, use that platform to make a statement 
but like you said, I don't want to, I'm not trying to hurt anybody. Like it's great that people are doing asana. I mean, I'm glad, you know, it's, I think it's beautiful and I love to look at it too, but we have to remember there's another side. And the other side is not only different bodies, but also different identities and also the internal practice that it doesn't really matter what you're doing, what shape you're making. In fact, like we did with our practice of alternate nostril breathing, what's really happening in the mind is the yoga. And um, I don't know, I'm always trying to figure out how to say that, you know, how do you say that in a real? (laughs) (laughs) That's not an hour and a half long. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's literally 30 seconds or less. And I completely agree with you. I had an experience in my first yoga teacher training um, that really pointed to the motivation. Like, Mm. what is the motivation when you work with your edge or when you challenge yourself? Yeah. I grew up dancing um, very intensely. And I remember being, I don't know, some lunge or something. And it struck me that my motivation was self-hatred. And then I just sat in child's pose and cried for the rest of the class. It was open and welcome. But Mm. from that moment on, it shifted how I relate to my body. It completely shifted my physical practice. Um, And I was just struck of where where else is that motivation hiding? Right. It's like your mat is a view to the rest of your life. So how did that impact the rest of your life once you recognize that? I think I leaned more into forgiveness. I think I softened. Um, I think I saw how hard I am on myself mm-hmm. internally. Uh, and I think there is still, you know, from the dance background, there's this, um, want for perfection. And so, uh, also just unwinding my addiction to perfection Yeah. and yeah. And, and more of what, rather than what a pose looks like, what a pose feels like. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. I mean, that's forgiveness is huge. I I feel like that is really going back to grief. I think that's maybe the answer, you know, is to just like forgive yourself that it's like you're doing your best, you know. And especially with dancing, I don't know. I just, I know so many dancers that can't come to yoga and then just like have to really address that part, you know, because dancing is so performing it is performing and you know we approach yoga in that way as performance um especially a yoga teacher i think it's really hard if you're a yoga teacher and you have a performance background mm. because it, it it makes it easier in a sense to be a teacher to be in front of the group and to demonstrate things to have people look at you but i think it's a trap again it's just repeating a lot of the same patterns I do think that's what we're seeing a lot on social media and I, and in yoga in general, a lot of performing and, I mean, it's okay. And I, I, I don't mean to criticize honestly, because I think people are doing the best they can. Um, 
And I also, because I, I feel like, um, this might sound really condescending, but it's like, how many people really want to face reality? Like, I don't think we do. I don't, you know, like on day-to-day -day basis, like I want to, I want to live in a bubble. Like I want to, you know what I mean? I don't want to think about the reality of not my limited existence, the suffering that's happening in the world. It's, it's hard. It's hard. You know? And so like, it's easier to get caught up in something. Yeah, we think it creates less suffering by ignoring it. Yeah. Right. The way out of suffering, literally, like if you go to the sutras, Patanjali says the way out of, he says suffering is avoidable. Future suffering is avoidable. I believe it's sutra 2.15. And then he says, or maybe it's 16. But then he says, basically, it's it's avoidable because if we stop identifying with a limited body and mind, you know, that this conflation of spirit and ego is what's causing the suffering, right? We've conflated the two. Um, and that's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to be in the world and not have my ego. Because here, we are, here I am. <laughs> will you talk to us about uh the inseparable partnership of yoga and service huh yeah yeah i was i was gonna talk about that too but then i had another thought i, I just yeah. I just wanted to go back to the gift I got from my friends who, my friends and my yoga students who died of AIDS. I just want to say that being with someone when they're facing illness and death or disability or intense trauma, it's a huge gift. And if you can, I and, and maybe that's part of service, maybe it's connected to that question, but I feel like Maybe and and probably the people in your community, you know, that are that are teaching um, incarcerated populations or communities connected to that to incarcerated populations. I mean, there's a lot of probably a lot of trauma there, I would think, and suffering. In a way, it's a gift to be with that if you can hold space, and that's the gift of service. But it's a gift because it's like. You, I, I'm, it's not, I don't want to say it. It's, it's not like you're getting something from them, but you are, you're like learning from their experience. You're getting the gift of their journey without having to necessarily go through it yourself. Right. You're like learning from these people that are basically further along on their journey because they are really into the suffering. They are really in the trauma. They are really into approaching death, you know, or deep into disease or, or illness. And I think that that is a gift, like for anyone to share that with me for any student or someone to share, like the way you expose something of yourself with us just a minute ago, like it's a gift when you do that. It's a gift when a student is willing to just be present with me and their suffering that I don't take lightly is what I'm trying to say that as actually, you know, like everything I've learned about yoga is that I you know, is from my students and I'm, I don't, and that sounds cliche, but it's really true. Like they've shown me the way 
I don't know if I deserve that, but it's like, what an amazing gift they've given me. And people think I'm doing this service, you know, like, oh, you're going, like, it's so great that I'm going to teach yoga to people with AIDS, but it's like, I'm the one that benefits, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know if that was your, what was the question exactly on service? Well, that? you're absolutely tying it all in. Um, and speaking, I think to our community as well, um, you know, my favorite, I think the most advanced spiritual community that I'm a part of, as well as the most welcoming community I'm a part of is the Sangha that I practice with at RJD, a prison in San Diego, Mm -hmm. um, because they are, or they have the opportunity to be with their suffering. Um, and just, I think it also, I think you're also speaking to the, almost the duality of being a teacher or being a facilitator, right? Uh, we talk about the relationship between teacher and student, but it's not necessarily an external relationship. It's that when we step into teachership, we are deepening our studentship as well. And so all of the things that we are receiving informs the way that we facilitate. And it's this kind of wave that continues to happen um, and it allows us to deepen our practice. And I think that's this beautiful gift of being a facilitator. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love the way you said that. I should write that down. I should do that in my next book. I'm writing about teaching and I just, it's hard to verbalize that. You know, it's hard to explain, especially to a new teacher, what it is that you can do as a teacher to cultivate that relationship and actually learn from your students like that. You know, how do you how do you prepare someone like a new yoga teacher, for example, for that? And it's something I think about a lot. Yeah. You have an answer though. What is that? Well, you know, I, I get really excited about this because I love this as well. And so I study with a few of my teachers, one of which Dr. Christine Selda, and she's the creator of, you know, the creator the founder of Shamanic Yoga Institute. And so we study a Peruvian lineage of medicine wheel work, which is indigenous teachings that are passed down from teacher to student or elder to uh, younger people in the community. So it's these, um, you know, sacred teachings mm. that are passed down and they're woven so incredibly beautifully with the yogic trainings. And so what I love that my teacher Chris does in the yoga teacher training is she subtly offers opportunities for you to be a teacher, but it's not about you standing at the front of the classroom teaching. Like we host, for an example, we host Kirtan two times during the yoga teacher training. And part of our homework or part of our work is being the host. So we invite the community to come to Kirtan. And it's about us going and creating new relationships and being uncomfortable and saying hi and introducing ourselves and being present and engaging. And so there's all these like subtle pieces of being a teacher that's not about here's how, here's the framework of your teaching. Mm. Um, and that's what I just have really found so valuable of the way that, of the way that she facilitates us stepping into that teacher role. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, it reminds me, I was talking with a 
kind of like a really well-known yoga teacher. And I, I asked him, what does he think um, yoga teachers should do to make yoga accessible? And like, in the end, he came to a really beautiful, simple idea, which was be kind. And that really struck me because he's like known for other complicated things that he teaches, but I'm like thinking be kind is kind of the message that of accessible yoga. Mm. It's like be welcoming, be kind, you know, be friendly. Like you said, like so important, like be willing to like reach out to someone as, at your job as a teacher is to reach out to your students and connect and just be open to them, be kind and friendly and actually accept wherever they are. Right. And I think this is so applicable also to the work that we do of going inside. Yeah. Uh, Bill talks about meeting people with positive regard, personal positive regard. Mm-hmm. And um, some people do tell you why they're inside or why they became incarcerated. Um, you know, we have so many programs around the world. Some are in jails, some are in prisons, um, some are in maximum securities. So the reasons why people are inside are quite vast. Um, but we also facilitate, you know, in San Diego for people that have been incarcerated, maybe upwards or close to 30, 30 years. Um, and so you have an opportunity to see someone as a person. And that's an opportunity I think that this community does not receive very often. Mm-hmm. And so just simple things like you're saying, or like we're talking about just greeting someone and being with someone and witnessing and listening. Um, that's a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Matthew Sanford, you know, he's a good friend of mine and he's a great teacher. Um, he created um Mind Body Solutions is his organization and he teaches adaptive yoga and yoga for people with disabilities. And he has a disability himself and he has a great book out, um, his autobiography called Waking. Um, but he talks about, um, he says it many different ways, but humanity masked as yoga is one of the things he shares. This idea of that's it. It's just connecting with humanity through this practice. And I think that's beautiful teaching for me and to remember. And I and and I feel like that's the service is to be kind, be welcoming, be friendly, be of service to people. Like here I am. I'm making myself available to you mm. for this moment. I'm going to guide something or other. In a sense, it really doesn't matter what that thing is. What's more important is that we are here together just for this moment and we can share our humanity and our spirituality, I would say, because another thing, humanity and spirituality. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you one more question before we open it up to our audience, but I know that I have 20 more questions that I want to engage in. Yeah. Will you talk to us about the origin or the root of accessible yoga? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the actual story is that uh, of like the term or the organization. Yeah, the, the organization, I think. 
Well, I, can, I mean, it's connected, I guess, because I, I started using the phrase accessible yoga. It was around 2007 um, because I, I was leading 200-hour trainings. It was like a job I had. I was leading 200-hour trainings. Um, and the other way I was teaching was going out into the community and teaching in local hospitals and community centers, mostly for disabled people. And a lot of the disabled people wouldn't come to the 200 hour training I was doing. Like I had longtime students and I kept saying, come take 200, you know, come take teacher training with me. And they wouldn't do it. Or when they did it, they were just frustrated and felt this is too much for me. Like these intensive 200 hour trainings were not accessible. And so accessible yoga came out of my desire to make yoga teacher training accessible mm. originally to other people who don't feel like they would belong in that kind of, you know, they didn't see themselves as a yoga teacher in the way that it's, you know, shown in the media. So that's where accessible yoga started. And the idea was to me, it was not just accessible to people with disabilities, but also making the heart of the teachings accessible. And then people who took those trainings and graduated kind of stuck together and they formed, they helped form an organization that became accessible yoga association, which is our nonprofit. And, um, around 2015, I had moved, I lived in Northern California and moved to Southern California, which is actually really far away. If you don't know. And I'm kind of left my yoga community. And I realized that, you know, and I always teach, I was always teaching outside of like the studios anyway. And I felt like, wow, I realized so many of us are doing that and don't have a community. Like we don't see ourselves represented in the yoga world and no one's supporting us. And so we had a conference in 2015 here, um, the accessible yoga conference here actually in Santa Barbara. Um, and it was awesome. It was just like coming together. I mean, it was pretty small. It was like a hundred and people, but it just felt like, you know, like the community really connected in that moment. And that's, that's really where the nonprofit ignited. And, and this continued to grow from that, from those conferences, we'd get together a lot. We had a lot of in-person conferences over the next, um, I don't know, seven years or so. And then seven years. Yeah. And then COVID maybe six years and then COVID happened. And so we went online and now mostly our work is online. We're doing online events and we have, um, ambassadors and a, a new online studio, um, through the nonprofit. So people can, anyone's welcome to practice with us online. We have a wonderful collection of teachers there and I'm continuing to look for other ways. I have to admit that I feel, I don't know how to say this, but I feel like there's another part to this story that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> there's more to the story that's coming. It sounds weird. Uh, just no, no. having this feeling that those of us still who are working and I mean, I don't even want to say, I don't know how to say who we are, like accessible yoga community, the people who like are basically doing the work, like in the field. Like, I don't feel like we have yet come together in a cohesive way. Mm. I feel like you have this community here that's beautiful and strong. We have an incredible accessible yoga community. There are many other like individual groups like that, but I feel like we haven't connected. And I, so I feel like there needs to be a way to do that and somehow um, to recognize our work. Like, I don't mean in an egotistical way, but I mean it in a really profound way to just recognize that yoga is this. Like, like I, <laughs> this isn't a sound weird, but I think we need to move from the outside to the center. Mm -hmm. Like, this is yoga. 
And, and this is the practice. You know, those of you that are teaching through the Prison Yoga Project and organizations are doing, are teaching yoga and practicing yoga 100%. That to me is actually more true to the tradition than what we're seeing presented as yoga through kind of general social media and general media. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think we need to, we need, are responsible for changing that in some way. I love this. I'll speak for the organization and say we're in. <laughs> uh, I've got Jen, who's our senior trainer, <laughs> hopping into the chat as well, saying more PYP collaborations. And I completely agree with you. I'm hearing almost like a united front. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I really love this idea. And I hear you of it's almost like an, another chapter. Yeah. And I have I have some ideas, actually. OK. All right. Good. I'm so excited that this conversation is going to continue. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited that Jen said that. And I feel like, yeah, I think there's another, yeah, there's like another chapter. I'm. It's frustrating to me that yoga is perceived the way it is because it's actually, it's not respectful. It's not true. You know, it's not, it's not honest. It's actually harmful. So it's not a himsa, right? It doesn't follow the actual ethics of yoga to present it in a way that is exclusive and um, potentially harmful to people. And yet I see countless people in the world practicing and teaching in this way that is more connected to the truth of yoga. And I, I just want to support all those people doing it, including you and all of your community. I mean, I just feel like that's, that's what I'm here for. Like I'm here to help. So. I'm so excited to see a year from now, two, three, four, five years from now on this date, um, the beginning of pride Mm -hmm. and uh, to see how it unfolds. Me too. Yeah. I had a a friend um, that posted uh, and I feel like it kind of, I'm going definitely a little bit off topic, um, but it's such an interest. Pride, I feel like it's such an interesting time because um, especially yogic, right? It's like we have an identity and the identity still wants to be uplifted and celebrated, but also uplifted and celebrated in a way because like the origins of pride is uh, a riot, a fight. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the need to continue to identify and express the identity because there is still violence happening towards the identity. Yeah. Um, so just such a I, I don't know. I also really like I like seeing pride as like a time of like uh, transformation. Yeah, I love that question, that thought and concept. And that's really central to the, to my book, Yoga Revolution, actually. So how do you how do you celebrate individuality and diversity while practicing unity and connection? And I actually think they go together directly. I actually think the more you connect with yourself and that spirit that's within you, that's the same with everyone. And you start to see that in everyone. You don't see everyone as just like you. You actually begin to see the difference. You can celebrate the ways that we're different. We're not, we don't need to be afraid of each other in the same way. And maybe that sounds like a lot of, I don't know, fantasy, but I think it's true. No, I think it's beautiful. I think it speaks to the diversity of the human experience. And if you are able to be present with that, 
it's endless beauty. Exactly. Unity and diversity. That's what Swami Shivananda would say. You know, yoga is seeing unity and diversity. And that means that the diversity exists, that the diversity is there. And it's beautiful because it's not, yeah, it's just not scary because you know that at the heart of it is connection as well. Um, yeah. Thank you. We've got amazing comments in the chats and we have some questions rolling in as well. Okay. so. We've got two questions in here. I'll read them out loud. So for our live audience, which is also the benefit of coming live, is that you get to ask our guests questions. So how you do this, technically, um, if you're on a desktop or a laptop, at the bottom of your screen, there's a black box at the bottom, and it says Q&A. Drop your questions into the Q&A box. Um, if you don't want to do that, you can also drop it in the chat. Um, but this way, it gives me a, a nice list that we can ask Jivana. And so I'll start, but now is the time that you can submit your questions as well. Uh, from our community member, I love this reattunement to yoga as a mental practice and embodied mental practice. I like that. For those who are incarcerated, have been incarcerated or will be incarcerated, as well as those who have lived experience of abuse and stalking surveillance, all of whom may struggle with violence of the gaze, how can we as practitioners cultivate a sense of privacy and find the freedom to practice any yogic embodiment when the trauma response of being watched affects the mind body energy so much. Wow. That's such an interesting question. I mean, I think part of that is depends on the, the setting, I guess, that I'm trying to visualize, like, is that, you know, is it like an in-person setting where you're teaching or is it, you know, I think, a lot of what helps, and I mean, you all know trauma-informed yoga more than anyone probably in this community, but I would just say like a lot of the trauma-informed teachings or trauma-sensitive teachings have to do with, with that, like trying to help people feel safe in the space where you are doing yoga. And so I think it has to do with a lot, as much as possible, allowing people to choose where they are in the room, whether they sit with a back to a wall. Um you know, whether they're behind someone or in front of someone. I mean, the, the, the real challenges come for me in those situations are the student, the peer interaction, student to student interaction. Can everyone find a way to be safe in that space without making someone else feel uncomfortable? Letting people choose to have their eyes open or closed is always an option. Internal practice, I think, might be helpful to respond to that too. Like the way we practice alternate nostril breathing without doing anything physically means that you can actually... Practice without anyone knowing what you're doing. You're going to do your entire in your. I do it in all my trainings. I guide people through sun salutation, physically doing it, standing, using a wall, sitting in a chair, lying in a bed, or only in the mind. And I would think some kind of internal practice like that could be soothing for someone that feels like they're being watched a lot. Like they, it's there's nothing to see, right? Mm -hmm. Taking away the performative aspect. And I think generally speaking, that's the other part is just asking yourself how much you perceive yoga as performance and, and really approaching it differently for yourself. And so when you're teaching it, you just be careful about the word choice. Um, 
You know what I'm saying? Like, are you correcting people's physical posture, trying to keep them safe in some way, or are you just focusing more on how they look? And I think, you know, we do that sometimes unconsciously because of our training that we're trained to look at our students and judge them on appearance. And I think that is sometimes, um, you know, off-putting or even triggering for a student to be criticized or corrected, even if we mean well and we want to support them. Um, so I guess, yeah, just to reflect on that, like how are you creating the space and how are you, what are you, what are the words you're using when you're teaching? I hope that's helpful. Yeah. And I, I would also, I want to speak to it as well. Um, maybe speaking to something that's like kind of unsaid in the question. I'm, I have not been incarcerated, but I am feeling a, a same shared sense of um, almost disassociation of mm. being outside of your body and how the practice of meditation or mindfulness is about the awareness of, of observation. So I could see how that could be triggering and how it could shoot you even far out of your body. Yeah. And so my offering is to just work with your window of capacity of being in your body. And that might not look like yoga. That might not look like mindfulness. That might look like you doing the dishes. Um, maybe you have uh, uh, sensory issues as well. I, I feel that with myself. Um, and so just what are ways that you can work with being in your body? That's awesome. Yeah. And sometimes more physical practices help that actually mm. and taking away from the mental and just like doing something like, like make it, making an exercise, like you can do an exercise, like you can go for a run or go for a brisk walk, or you can do some push-ups or jumping jacks and it can be yoga. If you bring in that consciousness, right. Thank you. Also, could you share your thoughts on cultural appropriation of yoga and the presence of authentic hybridity in yoga traditions? Example, the combination of yoga practice with another tradition that is not historically related to cultural origins of yoga, or for someone who does not share the blood ancestral lineage to the cultural origins of yoga, who engages with a yogic practice and a deity from historically yoga traditions such as Shiva. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, yeah, it's just important to understand that we are using these practices and they are being appropriated. And I think to me, the way to address it is to respect the tradition and to try as best I can to um, teach what I what I have discovered as the truth of the practice as much as possible. To learn from South Asian teachers and to try to share their message. Um, to me, it also helps to go back to the source teachings, you know, to read the sutras and the Gita and the Hatha Yoga Paripika. I think the Upanishads, like to read these texts, they're available. And I think it gives us access to a practice before it was colonized often before it was appropriated so i feel like we can find some connection there and maybe most of all is just being ethical you know remember that the eight limbs of yoga begins with yama the ethics of yoga and 
that speaks directly to appropriation. Appropriation is basically stealing in a way that's harmful. Um, taking something from an indigenous culture, using it without giving back, without being respectful, and actually causing harm to that tradition at the same time. So I think consciousness of it and mm, avoiding the kind of, you know, capitalist nature of yoga in the West is the way we do it, lifting up others, and especially South Asian teachers, I think is really important. I hope that's helpful. I'll share a piece too um, that I often use as an example. I have um, a girlfriend who was struggling with the same issue of honoring and respecting the lineage, basically in, in public classes, would teach yeah. at like a really big van, uh, studio in Vancouver. And they sat for a while and contemplated. And I know that this person has the utmost integrity uh, and is so compassionate and kind. And their solution was to one, acknowledge the roots of yoga before every class started. So mm -hmm. to call in the peace and the origin of yoga. And then mm -hmm. also they talked about the eight limbs. So they mm -hmm. said, here are the eight limbs and here are the limbs that will practice in class. But, but always speaking to that yoga is more than asana. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's, that's a basic big conversation. I think that we're having in the West right now, or a, a place of focus um, mm -hmm. that yoga is yoga is more than asana. Right. And I think accessibility speaks to it as well. I mean, accessibility is really the heart of the teachings that these are universal spiritual teachings. So if we make them exclusive in any way, um, I think we're not teaching truthfully. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Another question. Thank you both for this conversation. Is there any chance you'll do an in-person 200-hour yoga teacher training again, or will it only be online? Thank you. Yeah, the 200-hour will only be online because the 200-hour in-person would mean that I'm in one place for a very long time. Unless I guess I did it here in town. But um, what's great about virtual trainings is that they're more accessible. You know, they allow people to live their lives and to not be in a physical place all the time. They can miss class because they're busy and working and then catch up later. Um, it's less expensive often. You don't have to travel. It's, I just, I'm kind of committed to online training. I am looking at going back to do some short in-person events, but it won't be longer trainings for sure. Because um, being together in person is really sweet. And I think that's how some people learn best you know, is in person. So I, I get that. So I think I have some programs to schedule starting in November, but it won't be a longer program. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then the same person said, I did take your online 38 hour training and it was awesome. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Anita. Yeah. I appreciate that. Mm. Um, next question. I'm curious about how you teach with a very diversified class from wheelchair bound to advanced students. Love yeah. this. Let's get into it. Yeah. First, I would just, I would, I would 
say that be thoughtful about our language and normally like you wouldn't want to say wheelchair bound because that that sounds like the wheelchair is limiting in some way and most people that i know who are wheelchair users feel very liberated from the wheelchair and so they like to talk about it again as something they use right like i'm a wheelchair user or i'm or i'm, or I'm currently in a wheelchair um yeah wheelchair liberated exactly so um but it's a great question. And I, I'd say that's a big part of my training. So the shorter training that I do, the accessible yoga training is focused on really two things. One is learning how to adapt asana and all different practices at different levels to, to imagine that every practice we do is like an entire spectrum of possibilities, right? Like if you take a practice, even a pranayama practice or an asana, like a tree, you could say tree pose can be done in bed, lying on a mat, sitting in a chair, kneeling on the floor, sitting on the floor, standing at the wall, whatever, you know what I mean? There's, you can do it in your mind. Like there's so many ways depending on why you're doing it. And so we focus a lot on the why. And then the second piece of the training is that question, which is how do you effectively teach a group where there's different levels in the same class without either talking endlessly because you're giving so much instruction or making someone feel left out. And I mean, that might be unavoidable sometimes, but I have a, I can tell you what it is. I use a skill. Um, I call it um, prepare separately, practice together. And we go over it in detail in the training, but prepare separately, practice together is a thing that I discovered I was doing kind of naturally over time. And I noticed some other experienced teachers doing it too. And so I started to teach people how to do this technique. Like you don't have to like figure it out yourself. You can actually learn from people who've done it for a long time. Um, and what I mean by prepare separately, practice together, is that if you, for example, I often teach classes where there's a mat, someone on the mat and someone in a chair at the same time. And it is important to create um, safety in those different versions of a pose. And so prepare separately, it could be create a foundation. And it's usually the foundation of a pose that's different in the chair versus on the mat. So I might, like for a tree pose, I mentioned that pose. In the tree, I might have someone sitting in the chair extend uh you know externally rotate the right hip and bring the leg out to the side come onto the toe on the right foot lean forward into the left leg in the chair on the mat come to standing lift the right leg rotate the knee out to the side and bring the foot onto the inside of the right leg and then everyone together like then you know so prepare separately practice together i prepared the foundation of each separately and then together, let's everyone focus with the eyes, bring the palms together at the chest, find a place of balance or try some arm variations together. And so like, meaning that you're kind of building a, a pose from the bottom up where you find a different foundation, but then figure out what's the same and teach that at the same time. So that at least everyone has a moment of doing tree pose together in the whole group, no matter where they're at, you know, and it takes skill and experience to do it. And it's much easier with certain poses than others. And so it does take some preparation, but I find it's a very effective technique. Um, if that makes sense. I know I just taught it very quickly. <laughs> no, uh, I love this. And, you know, I don't know the scientific language behind it, but we talk about it in PYP a lot. Um, is the synchronicity of moving together, of doing that piece of togetherness in a space. Um, and I think that there's a lot of positive benefits to that. So I love this idea. 
of of building the foundation and then having the opportunity to move together. Super. Exactly. It could be a small, it could be a small movement that's done together. And if you have people in all different variations of a pose, really like people standing, lying down, sitting in a chair, you can have it all happening and yet still find the common thread breathing together. Let's all take a breath together or let's bring the hands together, you know, no matter where we're at, right. Whether we're standing, lying down or sitting in the chair, Let's focus on, and, and also focus on a particular element. Because the other thing is like each pose, each practice in yoga is just a, an opening. You know what I mean? It's just the beginning of something. And then you decide where you want to go with it. So I could say tree pose it offers balance. You can explore balance in that pose. And that's huge, right? You can explore strength. You could explore grounding, what that means. What does it mean to be grounded like a tree? Um, you can explore um, connecting with the sky. So being grounded and lifting at the same time. Like there's so many beautiful elements in that one practice. There's a hip opening thing happening. Um, there's probably arm and shoulder strengthening. Anyway, there's so many different things. And yet, if you can kind of focus on one part more. So like, say you say, I'm going to do tree, but I want to focus on the element of balance today in tree. Like that's the why behind my teaching of this practice. I'm going to focus on balance. And so it really helps guide the variations you choose and the direction you go. And then in whatever variation people choose, you have a connecting thread, like, okay, focus. What is happening? What are you strengthening in the chair? What are you strengthening on the mat? Um, do you know what I'm saying? So you create like a theme within a practice as well yeah and i love this um i also can see how that would be really great with working with youth as well so i know oftentimes like working with repetition or working with the same sequence is valuable but changing the theme or the focus each time really shows like the the versatility of each pose totally love this it's remarkable I often think about it, I don't know if this makes sense, but you can't see yoga from the outside. So whatever, what, what is happening in there? Like right now, like I can be sitting here very relaxed. Like I could sit here in my chair and just be like really relaxed. I could also sit here in the exact same pose and be totally engaged. Like I could sit here, press my feet into the floor, engage all the muscles in my legs, all the way up through my back and spine, you know, and really focus on my breath. And yeah, you saw a little lift there, but it's like, an internal experience. I can connect with my breath and really connect with the flow. I can bring my mind to part of my body. There's so much that happens internally. So I think it's up to us as a teacher to bring that in. It's so much more than the shape. Yeah. Thank you. We are coming close to time. And this has been such a wide and deep conversation and really looking forward to doing this again. I want to give you the last opportunity to speak to anything that hasn't been spoken to or put a bow on anything or, you know, to leave us with any additional magic. <laughs> yeah, I know we've been kind of all over the place, which is kind of how I work, but I I'm grateful for your questions and for everyone who's here today and anyone who's listening. Thank you. I feel just really grateful to 
be able to share and practice yoga. And I think that's related to that earlier question about appropriation, just to express my gratitude to my teachers and everyone who's shared with me and to, you know, the accessible yoga community and all the people I get to work with and learn from every day. It really means a lot to me. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I welcome further conversations with you and anyone in your organization and um, anyone who's interested in connecting with us at Accessible Yoga, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And you can find Jivana Heyman and his work at jivanaheyman.com. And then there's also accessibleyoga.org. This is an opportunity for you to find any of his books, which are incredible. I highly recommend all of them. Um, if you work in a school or another kind of facility, order one for the school as well. They should be everywhere. And you can find all of the amazing accessible trainings at accessibleyoga.org. Thank you so much for joining us. And you are an integral part of this community. And accessible yoga is absolutely revolutionary. So thank uh, you for being here. Thanks, Blair. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me.